Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. It's hard to believe how quickly a year goes by, but it's been a year since uh, Donald Trump shocked everybody, at least everybody in the conventional media, uh, you know, Wall Street, all the pundits, the professional politicians, you know, anybody that has anything to do with uh, Saturday Night Live television show, right? Nobody believed that Trump had a, a chance, right? He had a snowball chance in hell of winning the White House. I mean, Hillary Clinton had probably already picked out the China patterns, you know, she was ready to go. You know, she had this big glass ceiling that she was ready to shatter, you know, in her victory party. Uh, so everybody believed that uh, that Trump was going to lose and Hillary was going to win, even after the polls closed, right? It took about an hour or two uh, for reality to set in. But, you know, I was even watching some of the coverage and the early polls were closing and it was still, yep, you know, Hillary's going to win. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a huge victory. And we all know the story. Uh, Donald Trump won. So now it has been a year. And of course, the stock market has gone up a lot during that year. In fact, for the first year, the market was up just over 21 percent since Trump was elected. And of course, Trump never lets you forget this because he constantly talks about it, but he says it's unprecedented, right? This stock market rise is unprecedented. And that is a lie. You know, why do you have to go out of your way to lie when 21% is still a big move? In fact, if you go back to Eisenhower, right, which is going back to the early 1950s, which is almost 70 years, this is the fifth biggest rally for the first year of a presidential term. So that's still not bad. It's fifth place, right? You know, it's better than last place. I mean, the guy that's in last place was Eisenhower. Eisenhower has last place, actually. I just noticed it. No, wait a minute. I'm wrong. It's Bush. <laughs> Bush is in last place. And this is Bush the younger, uh, J.W. Bush, who was elected. Unfortunately, he was elected in 2000, and the market tanked that year. It was down 20.4%. So that is the worst performance of any president. But uh, Trump is number five. But let's look at number one. I've got this list. I'm looking at it on Zero Hedge. Number one was Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, Democrat. Number one, 1996. So his uh, second term. And the market was up 31.7%. So obviously, that's a 50% bigger rise than the one we had in the first year of Trump. Yet Trump is claiming that this rise is unprecedented. Well, I mean, obviously, there's plenty of precedent for bigger rises. Kennedy, Jack Kennedy, his first term, 1960, market up 28.4%. Uh, in third place, it's Barack Obama. In his second term, the market rallied 23.9% in the first year. And then Bush, the elder, 
1988, his first and only term, stock market rallied 21.7% uh, for George Bush Sr., right? And so in fifth place, we have Donald Trump. So, I mean, you know, he's certainly in the top third, right, of, the, of, of where these presidents are, but not unprecedented. But the bigger problem for Donald Trump is the valuation, right, where the market started the rally. So if you want to find a president who inherited a market that was as overvalued as the one we have now, you'd have to look at George Bush. And in his first year, the market tumbled 20%. So to me, all that's happened is we've set Trump up for a bigger drop, maybe not in the first year, but maybe it's going to happen in his second year. Uh, but the other presidents, when they had these big rallies, the market was not nearly as expensive uh, when when they were elected. So Trump inherited a gigantic bubble, and instead of popping right away like it did under George Bush, the bubble just got bigger, right? And uh, and and that is going to be, as I said, a big problem for Trump. But you know, despite the fact that we've had this big gain in the stock market, and despite the fact that both investor and consumer confidence is high. In fact, I was looking at the uh, consumer debt numbers that came out, credit numbers came out yesterday. Huge spike in credit card debt, back over a trillion now on credit card debt, highest in quite some time. Of course, credit card debt, auto loans, student loans, all now well above $1 trillion. So record debt when you add them all up together. But I guess consumers are confident enough to take on more debt or desperate enough to take on more debt because they have no savings. But we do see these consumer confidence numbers high, these surveys coming out high, like ISM and things like that, investor confidence high. So we have the stock market high, we have consumer confidence high, yet Donald Trump's popularity has never been lower, right? I mean, he's, he's, his popularity has fallen. And if you look at the approval rating for Trump, it's, I think, the lowest of any modern president after one year. You have record low approval of Donald Trump. And why is that? You might think, well, if people have so much confidence, why doesn't the, the high confidence you know, create approval for Trump, right? If people are you know, looking at their pocketbook, if they're feeling better about the economy, if they're feeling better about their wealth, if they're feeling better about their job prospects, then why aren't they feeling better about Trump? After all, wouldn't they give him credit, right? He's certainly taking credit for everything good that he claims is happening. So why aren't voters giving him credit? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. One, you know, obviously, you know, maybe it's true that these the, the numbers, the polls are wrong. I mean, maybe people aren't as optimistic as these polls uh, describe. I'm not really sure how they're asking the questions, but you would think that if people were so confident in the future that they would credit Donald Trump for, for some of that optimism, but they're not. Now, there's another reason, maybe for the same reason that people were reluctant to tell the pollsters they were going to vote for Trump, they are reluctant to tell them that they like Trump, right? Because maybe they're still embarrassed, right? Maybe they're in the closet. And, and so maybe they're not being honest, right? They're just, you know, they don't want to be called a bigot or a racist. So they're just closet Trump supporters. And so, you know, yes, I'm optimistic about the economy, but I don't approve of Donald Trump because, you know, I'm not a racist, right? So maybe you got some of that going on. But also what I think could be going on is that people are confident that the economy is going to do better. And they, and they think that Trump has something to do with it. They just don't like Trump. 
right? For whatever reason, they don't like what he's saying. They don't like what he's doing, but they think the son of a bitch is going to, you know, make the economy get better. And so he may, he may be a son of a bitch, but hey, I'm optimistic on the economy because that son of a bitch, you know, is really going to get things going. He's going to make a great America great again, but you know, I don't like him as a person, right? I don't, I don't think he's a, he's a good president, but you know what? I think I'm going to make a little money because I think he's going to cut my taxes, right? Maybe, you know, maybe that's what they're thinking. And that's why he's becoming a little bit more popular. But, you know, you look at the results of the elections that happened yesterday. You know, I, I mentioned something about this on my Facebook page because we had uh, Democrats win uh, governorships in Virginia and, and New Jersey. And a lot of people said, look, you know, this is no big deal. You know, these are blue states anyway. So who cares if Democrats won in blue states? And it matters because you have to just look behind the headlines. First of all, even though New Jersey was a blue state, they did have a Republican governor. Chris Christie was the governor of New Jersey. He theoretically was a Republican. So now they have a Democrat. So New Jersey is now bluer than it was before. And interestingly enough, you know, the, the, the guy that won, won promising to raise taxes, right? And he got the votes of people who weren't going to pay the higher tax because, of course, they want to tax the rich. And so all the people who aren't rich are going to vote to tax somebody else, right? He wanted higher minimum wage and all kinds of stuff. It was a real, uh, uh, you know, a redistribution type a campaign of us versus them, you know, class warfare, and, you know, and he won. But also in Virginia, yes, you know, Virginia is, uh, you know, more blue than red, but you look at the margins. The margin of victory here was much bigger uh, than anybody really thought. And of course, immediately Donald Trump tried to distance himself from this. Oh, that this guy's not really, you know, he's not really a Trump guy or he's, you know, whatever he was saying to try to make sure that he wasn't tarnished uh, by this loss. But the reality of it is that I think the electorate is moving further towards the left, especially, I think, the way uh, the Republicans have been uh, defending this tax cut. Now, from the beginning, and I mentioned it on this podcast, and I said it was going to come back to bite them, uh, and it may even come back to derail the entire tax cut or at least, you know, destroy any growth potential that it theoretically may have had because they initially said, we're not going to benefit the rich. This is all about the middle class. When the way it was originally laid out, where the top rate went down from 39.6 to 35, right? And you were going to cut the business tax rate all the way down to 25. There were no real exceptions. Uh, they were getting rid of the estate tax. They were cutting the tax on pass-through income. There was all kinds of things that were going to benefit the rich. And he and Trump denied that it was going to benefit the rich. And of course, all the, the benefits for the rich came out. And now they were forced to take away a lot of the benefits for the rich to the point where this tax cut really doesn't have benefits, big benefits for the rich. In fact, there are a lot of people who people would consider rich who are going to pay higher taxes as a result of these tax cuts. But the publicity is still there because here's what's going on. The problem is the rich pay most of the taxes. So let's say you have a small tax cut for the rich where, you know, they, they, they save 1%, right? They pay 1% less in taxes. That's a lot of money. That's a big number, right? You can have poorer people whose taxes get cut by 10%, right? And if you add up all those 10% tax cuts for poorer people, the dollar amount is still going to be a lot smaller than the 1% tax cut 
for the very rich. So they don't focus. When the media is talking about how, you know, 50% of the gain goes to the top 1%, it's the dollar amount of the gain. But if you judge the tax cut by how much of a percentage your income tax is going down, the people at the top are seeing a much smaller reduction in the tax that they are paying as a percentage than the people at the bottom. In fact, there are a lot of people who are seeing their tax liability, at least their income tax liability, eliminated completely. They have a 100% reduction in the amount of tax that they're paying. I mean, if you're somebody who is making a small amount of money and you used to pay $1,000 a year in taxes, and after the tax cut, you pay zero, right? That's a 100% reduction in your tax liability. Now, maybe there's a rich guy who was paying a million dollars a year in taxes, and now he's paying 990000 right? Well, the, the way they're going to report it is, well, you know, the rich guy is saving $10,000, and the poorer guy is only saving 1000 So, you know, 90% of the benefit is going to the rich because the richest guy is saving 10000 and this other guy is only saving 1000 But the rich guy is having a 1% tax cut, and the poorer guy is having a 100% tax cut. And, you know, the other problem with the way this tax cut is structured, when you take a lot of people off the income tax roll completely, you really change the dynamics of the income tax. Because once people are removed from having to pay any income tax, then obviously they are in favor of a tax hike. Because if they're not paying income taxes, they certainly want to pay, uh, they want higher income taxes for other people. They have no objection to higher income taxes that they don't pay. Because once they have these tax cuts, very few uh, future congressmen are going to want to tax the lower income. Once you, you know, raise the, the exemption, nobody is going to want to lower it back down again. That's political suicide, right? That's taking from the poor. So I think once we kind of permanently reset this bar, once Donald Trump removes another significant percentage of the population from having to pay any income tax at all, they're probably never going to get back in. And so there's another huge block of voters who will constantly want higher income taxes on other people because they're not paying, and they don't understand the cost of government. You see, when you have people who are going to benefit from government but not share in the cost, they always want more government, right? To them, there's no downside of more government, right? To them, there is a free lunch because they're, they're not paying for the lunch, right? Somebody else is paying for it. So I don't like the idea of having a bunch more people who aren't going to pay income taxes. Remember, Mitt Romney was caught on film, you know, and he got, it was a lot of flack because he said, you know, there's the 47% that don't pay income taxes at all. Well, after this tax cut, assuming that it happens, um, then that number is going to be a lot bigger. Now, I'm not saying these people don't pay income taxes. I mean, they actually do. They pay the Social Security tax, which is, in effect, a wage tax. It's like an income tax. Uh, but it's you know people don't necessarily look at it as an income tax because it's a separate it's a separate tax. So I'm not saying they're getting off tax free, but of course there are going to be some people if they get this earned income tax credit if their income is low enough and they have a job, you know the income tax turns into a, a welfare program. They actually benefit from the income tax. They get a check. They don't mail a check to the government. The government mails a check to them. Now you know I actually like the earned income tax credit. If, I mean, I don't like any of these welfare programs, but if you're going to try to help people who are working, this is much better than doing it with a minimum wage. Because when you increase the minimum wage, you create unemployment. 
you make it more expensive for employers to hire people, so they try not to. But if you just put it on the taxpayer instead of on the employer, if you let the market set wages, and then you get a situation where you have you know, a single mom who's working a minimum wage job, right? Well, okay, then maybe you can give her some kind of bonus to help offset the fact that she's trying to support a family on a job that's meant for a teenager who's living at home. But don't put the onus on the employer. If we as a society want to decide that people with families working low-paying jobs should get help, then let's have the entire country help them. Let's not force the person that gives them a job to help them because what that person who would have given them a job might decide to do is, you know what? I don't want, I'm not running a charity. I'm running a business. And if you're going to force me to pay my employees charity instead of wages, I'm just not going to hire them. I'm going to automate. I'm going to outsource. I'll do it myself, whatever it is. So it is a very inefficient way to help the working poor uh, with a minimum wage hike. It's much better to have something like the, like the earned income tax credit. So, you know, when you're trying to pick the lesser of the evils, I would pick that. But my point here is that, you know, you pe- more people benefit from the income tax. So instead of dreading April 15th, they look forward to it, right? That's when they get, you know, they get, they get a bonus. They get, they, they get paid, right? Everybody else is playing the Monopoly game and they have to keep paying. And, you know, they, they keep collecting. Every time you pa- pass go, they collect, right? They're not, or, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not paying a tax. So this is going to create more of that. But now, you know, the other problems with these tax cuts, too, is the fact that so many people that are not in the 1%, I mean, higher earners, are going to be paying more, especially if you live in California, if you live in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, a lot of these states. And if you have a good income, you're making, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars a year. You're not rich. And certainly if you're living in Manhattan, you're barely making ends meet. Uh, but, and if you're married and, you know, both couples have making a hundred, 150, 200,000 a year, they're all going to get tax hikes, right? These, these are not rich people. I mean, they're not poor, right? I, I don't know if you could describe them as comfortable, but whatever they are, they're not, they're going to get a tax hike. And when you could talk about some people getting tax hikes who are not rich, while you have rich people who are going to get tax cuts, even if those tax cuts are small. Right. As a percentage wise, because they're still leaving the top rate at, uh, you know, at the same. So the actual cut is, is relatively small on a percentage basis. But yes, if you make one hundred million dollars a year and your taxes go down one or two percent, that's still a lot of money. It's still a big number in the scheme of things. It's not this massive economic stimulus that the president wants to talk about. Now, on the corporate side, it could be if the corporate tax goes down from thirty five to twenty percent, you know, for some corporations that could be a big jolt to their after-tax income, and, and that is a positive thing. But then the, 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 the dynamics you know, still don't look good. Hey, we're cutting taxes on corporations, which most people see as another cold word for the rich, right? And we're raising taxes uh, on, on other people. In fact, you know, even though they, they double the personal exemption, even though your typical school teacher is probably going to pay lower taxes and have a pretty good tax cut, as a result of this, at least, you know, percentage wise, you know, they take away the ability of teachers to deduct their out-of-pocket expenses if maybe they buy some things for their class. I forget how much it is. It's not that much. Maybe it could be, let's say, a few hundred dollars a year. And now you can't do that anymore. They're making a big deal out of the fact that they're taking that away when the teacher overall is still getting a tax cut. 
But of course, when the media, the left wants to focus on it, we're taking away the benefits of the teachers to give money to millionaires and, and, and the rich. And I can already see people in the House, people in the Senate backing away. And this tax cut plan could really evolve into a class warfare redistribution plan where it's not about economic growth, it's about fairness, right? Because I think the Republicans and Donald Trump have already fallen into that trap. By saying we want to give tax cuts to the middle class, we want to give tax cuts to the lower class, and if we pair that now with the Democrats being fiscally responsible, see, you have a lot of Republicans that used to be deficit hawks that are now saying deficits don't matter, right? I mean, they, they pretended they mattered when Obama was president, but now they don't care, right? So they want to be, uh, you know, they, they, don't, they, they want to be doves now. They don't care about deficit. But if you have these Democrats now that are saying, hey, we don't want to, you know, put the tax cuts on a credit card. We don't want to run up the debt that our children are going to inherit. We don't want to run up the debt to give tax cuts to millionaires and billionaires, right? So what I could easily see happening with this tax cut is we end up raising taxes on the rich, so that we can cut taxes on everybody else and not have as big an impact on the deficit, right? So we just rob more from the rich so that we can give more to the not rich and that way we don't increase the deficit. And that is the type of tax cut that, hey, Trump says he wants because he says, hey, we're not about benefiting the rich. The rich have plenty of money. They don't need tax cuts. It's the, it's the middle class that deserves tax cuts. Well, if you want to give tax cuts to the middle class, if you don't want to cut any government spending, which nobody wants to do, right? And then if you don't want to have a big increase in the deficit, what's left? Tax hikes on the rich, right? And obviously you don't lose a lot of votes by raising taxes on the rich because there's not that many rich people, right? So I can see this tax cut plan moving more in that direction where the goal is more redistribution, not economic growth. Now, even as the stock market has been making new highs, new record highs, there are individual stocks, you know, that have been getting killed. You know, I mean, I watched, you know, yesterday there was this company, uh, I think Tr True Car was down about 30%. This Intelligent was down better than 40%. You know, I think TripAdvisors was down 20-something percent. It actually bounced a little bit today, but there are a lot of stocks that were getting killed. I talked a lot on this program about Snapchat. That thing was down 15%, almost 15% today. Not quite a new low uh, because it made a new low and then it rallied a little bit, but it looks like it's headed for another new low. But, you know, I have talked before quite a bit about this company, Blue Apron. And Blue Apron yesterday dropped to a new all-time record low. It was up about 4.5% today to 319, but it got all the way down to 303 yesterday. The IPO price was 10 bucks, so almost a 70% decline. In fact, the first day it traded as high as 11. So if you were the unlucky guy that bought that print, right? If you bought it at 11, and if you ha still have the shares, you're down more than 70% right now. But the reason I'm bringing it up is I pointed out at the time how ridiculous this company was that it was burning through cash like crazy. They were losing, I don't know, $50 million, $100 million a quarter. I mean, some obscene amount of money. Yet Wall Street was still willing to bring this thing public anyway. And they had a business model 
where I said even if they went on Shark Tank, they you know they couldn't get Mr. Wonderful uh, to buy you know you know twenty percent of the company you know at a at, you know at any valuation. I mean they couldn't get any investors in on this thing. Yet Wall Street was able to package this thing and and take it public. And I pointed out the absurdity of it. And the point was that these are the type of things that happen when you have irrational exuberance, when you have a, a mania, right? And, and that is exactly what we have. And, you know, Blue Apron is continually now going down as more bad news is coming out about the stock. But it's really just a microcosm, I think, of, you know, the entire market. I mean, there are a lot of other Blue Aprons out there uh, that are going to blow up. I mean, there are a lot of other overvalued stocks that have been hyped up. And even the companies that are legitimate and have legitimate businesses and make money, I mean, they're still way overpriced. And a lot of it is a function of how low the interest rates are. You know, I finally, I went back on Fox Business the other day. I hadn't been on in a while other than doing Liz Clayman's show. And, and I went on and I went in studio to, to actually do the show. And I thought I was actually going to be on for a, a longer a segment that I was, but I was on with Charles Payne. And, um, you know, he asked me about, you know, he said, you know, I don't see the irrational exuberance like we saw before, you know, with all the mom and pops buying stock. And, and my point to Charles, I said, yeah, because a lot of the mom and pops that were buying stock uh, the last time around, they're broke. You know, they're part-time waiters now, and you don't have enough money to buy stock when you're a part-time waiter. But that doesn't mean that there's no irrational exuberance. I would say that among the Americans who still have enough spare income to buy stocks, I would say there is a lot of uh, irrational exuberance going on. And I would say among professional investors, you know, judging by, you know, the VIX, judging by, you know, how, you know, the, the bullish consensus, you know, how optimistic people are and how cheap it is to buy insurance against the stock market going down because no one thinks it's going to go down. So they're giving away the insurance because people think it's a waste of money. You know, if you look at those evidences, I would say that professional investors are more irrationally exuberant now than they've ever been. Yes, in general, the overall public is not as exuberant as they were, let's say, during the dot-com bubble because not as many people have the resources to actually buy stocks. They lost it in the dot-com crash or they lost it in the housing crash. And now they're living paycheck to paycheck and they're loaded up with debt. So it doesn't matter to them that the stock market is going up because they can't afford uh, to buy any stocks. But to the people who do matter, right, you do have this record amount of irrational exuberance. And it's only in an irrationally exuberant market that a company like Blue Apron was allowed to even go public, right? Because people just throw caution to the wind and they're just going to buy everything and they're just going to see what happens, right? Because people are like, hey, it's a buy, it's an IPO, sign me up, let me do it. You know, and they don't even bother. They don't care about the risk. They don't look at the obvious flaws in the business model. Now, this one happened to blow up a lot quicker than most. But my point is there's some other ones that are out there. Some of them may be hiding in plain sight. Others, not as easy to see. But believe me, when this market turns, it's not just going to be like some of the stocks I mentioned today. Because when you have stocks that can drop 30 40% in a day because they missed their earnings by a little bit, I mean, that tells you that things are priced to perfection, and it's not just some of these obscure companies that you haven't heard about. The whole market really is priced to perfection, and there is tremendous risk underneath the market. And you look at some of these individual companies, and it reminds you of just how much risk there is. And speaking of risk, I guess I'll end another podcast by discussing Bitcoin, 
which made a new record high today. I mean, I think we got up to around 7,900 this morning, so just shy of 8,000, so almost another milestone. I think there was some news about some fork being averted, whatever it was, and Bitcoin ran up, and then it came crashing back down, almost all the way back down to 7,000 again. Uh, and as I'm speaking now, it's, you know, it's trading between 7,350 and 7,400, still looking pretty strong. I mean, still seems like it's now holding some support at around the 7,000 level. So the support keeps going up and up as there's buyers coming in, uh, to, uh, to the, uh, digital currency. But again, I, I, I read another article over the weekend by another guy, and this is a theme that I really see building now in Bitcoin. I mentioned it on my last podcast and that is this idea that Bitcoin is not going to be money in a sense that it's going to be an alternative as a medium of exchange. More and more people are saying, you know, Bitcoin is not going to work the way we thought it was going to work initially, where you know people in poor countries will just use it instead of their own currency. What Bitcoin is going to be is digital gold. So Bitcoin is not, you know, for poor people to buy a loaf of bread. It's for rich people to preserve their wealth. Right? It's something that you can buy instead of buying gold, but it's better than gold because it's digital gold. To the extent that more people buy into that argument, I could see more buying coming in because obviously if people are looking at Bitcoin as digital gold, right? well now obviously you have a much wealthier potential pool of buyers than people who are just looking, you know, to buy a cup of coffee or a loaf of bread, right? Instead of people having digital wallets with a few hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, this narrative is trying to appeal to investors, to savers, to hedge funds, to institutions saying you need this as part of your portfolio. This is a store of value. This is digital gold. Now, the problem, of course, is that Bitcoin is not digital gold. And eventually, the people that think it's digital gold are going to find out that it's not. Right? I, I, I mentioned this in the past. I, I, I talked about a digital house. Right? I can make an argument that a digital house is better than an actual house. I mean, I don't have to worry about uh, mowing the lawn. You know, I don't have to worry about termites. I don't have any property taxes. Right? I mean, I, I can easily sell it. I don't need, you know, I don't need a realtor. You know, I mean, there are a lot of benefits that a digital house would have over a real house, right? The roof is never going to leak. I'm not going to have, I don't need air conditioning. I don't need electricity. It's much cheaper for me to own a digital house than an actual house. But the bottom line is I can't live in a digital house, right? There are a lot of things that a digital house doesn't do that an actual house does, right? So a digital house is not really a house, right? It's a picture of a house on the internet, it's, you know, it's not an actual house. And so Bitcoin is not digital gold, right? It is not gold digitized. It is just digital. Now, you can say that Bitcoin is a digital asset that people might own instead of gold or in addition to gold, but it is not digital gold. Whatever it is, it's digital something or it's digital nothing, but it's not digital gold any more than a digital house is a, is a house, right? It's not a house. And Bitcoin is not gold. and But to the extent that a lot of people who never really bought gold or don't even understand gold are buying into these arguments that it's just like gold, only better, right? Then they're trying to open this up to a wider uh, pool of buyers. And maybe it's going to work. I mean, maybe that is one of the reasons 
that it is it is going up. And certainly, you know, this is going to benefit, let's say I, I talked about gold money to the extent that gold money is going to act as a custodian uh, for people who want to, you know, store their Bitcoin. They don't want to use it, uh, you know, to buy things. They want to hold on to it as a safe haven, as a store of value. And they can, you know, they can generate fees to custody it. They can generate transaction fees. You know, obviously, to the extent that investors are now suckered into this market because they think they're buying a digital version of gold, then, you know, that could bring on a much bigger uh, pool of buyers. So we'll see. I mean, we'll see if that's enough to bring a lot more air into the bubble. But the bottom line is this is wrong because they've already abandoned the, 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 the thing that was supposed to give Bitcoin value, which was the ultimate fact that it would serve as a medium exchange, that it would compete with the euro and the dollar and the yen. But now the argument is, no, no, it's not going to compete with currencies, right? So it's not really a digital currency. It's digital gold. It's going to compete with gold. And, you know, when people are looking at what's happened to the price of gold over the last five or six years, and they look at what's happened to the price of Bitcoin, well, obviously the price of Bitcoin has been, gone up a lot more than the price of gold. So it's better than gold because it's just like gold, only it goes up a lot more. So to the extent that people who are looking for gold buy Bitcoin instead, right? So it's not really people who wanted a currency and they opt for a digital currency. It's, hey, buy this as digital gold. And, and of course, then they make the argument that, well, if, if Bitcoin can only get a certain percentage of gold's market cap, well, then it's like sky high. And so you can paint these very big numbers. Once you convince people that Bitcoin is digital gold, uh, then you know you really could justify a much higher price. Of course, the problem is, there's nothing that stops any other digital currency from claiming to be digital gold. I mean, I actually remember, too, that when, when Bitcoin was you know first becoming popular, when it was, of course, a lot cheaper, they would say, well, Bitcoin is gold, uh, but Litecoin is silver, right? So there's all other metals. So something could be copper. I mean, so, but the difference is there's a real chemical difference between gold and silver, right? They're actually different metals with different properties. I mean, you can't come up with another gold. So if you want gold, you got to buy gold. If you're buying silver, you're getting something completely different. And that's not really the case when it comes to Bitcoin versus any one of a number of digital currencies that currently exist or that could exist in the future, right? They're all going to have the same properties when it comes to being a store of value, right? Because there you're not even talking about, you know, the transaction costs. Just I'm buying this digital currency and I'm holding on to it. And people think it's a store of value now because it's been going up. But wait till this thing crashes from whatever level it does. Uh, wait till it comes collapsing down. And then people who thought they were storing their value are going to realize that they didn't store anything. And whatever value they thought they had, they lost. Thank you.